This time on Poll Up, we're talking to the co-author of a new book from the Gallup Poll on how the pandemic has permanently altered work and what employers need to do about it in order to succeed going forward. Then a Sunday Washington Post ABC News poll set the politerati over the edge because it seemed to show that Donald Trump will easily beat Joe Biden in a hypothetical 2024 rematch, among other things. But is it all that? We're a little bit dubious. We'll talk about uh, the results and what it may actually say. And this is the weekend we celebrate one of the few things that we all have in common. A mom, our fun fast, asks a simple question, and dads may not love the answer so much. I guess I kind of gave that away. Anyway, let's get to it. And hi, everybody. Welcome to Poll Hub. I'm Jenny Dapper. I'm Barbara Carvalho. I'm Mary Griffith. And I am Lee Maringoff. Among the many disruptions uh, organizations are dealing with in a post-COVID world is how people think about work. Rewind for a moment. Pre-pandemic, a good deal of research and conversation on work was about the gig economy, if and how independent and often remote workers could improve productivity and lower organizational costs. Okay, now back to the future. Homes have become workplaces for a large proportion of office workers. Communication technology makes it commonplace to collaborate from locations around the globe. And employers are asking, how do we get our employees back into the office? Well, a new book from Gallup, Culture Shop, brings to bear research and data to guide leaders through this very new terrain. Joining us is co-author Jim Harder, Chief Scientist of Workplace Management and Wellbeing at Gallup, to share uh, his insights and observations. Welcome, Jim. Thank you so much for joining us today. Great to be with you. Thanks for having me, Barbara and Jay. So the definition of culture shock is the feeling of disorientation experienced by someone who is suddenly subjected to an unfamiliar culture, way of life, or set of attitudes. So why is that an accurate description of the, of the nature of work post-pandemic? Well, you might think of it now as an aftershock, actually, but um, the, the culture shock did happen when we went from you know, some really slight increases in remote working. Um, flex time was the most desired perk to uh, to March of 2020. And then, bam, um, you're talking the majority of office workers, well, all office workers pretty much working from home. Um, and then a, a shift in preference um, where now among remote ready jobs, 90% um, say they want some type of hybrid or fully remote option going forward and that's not changing. And so it's it's a it's a culture shock not just for the individuals but also for their leaders in in thinking about how they navigate that. And we really wrote this book to help leaders navigate how they go forward uh based on the research we had a chance to do the past few years. Are organizations though asking the wrong question by just trying to figure out how to get employees back into the office especially when such a huge proportion of them would rather have a lot more flexibility? I think it's too narrow of a question for sure. I think it's relevant uh, because in-person time does matter. There's a whole lot of research that shows, including ours, that shows in-person time does matter, but um, there's a bigger picture. Um, and, and one piece of that bigger picture is uh, people learned some learned about some autonomy. They learned about some independence and how their work can be done differently than it had been done before. 
and they had a chance to sit back and think about that dreaded commute and mm. how, how, how much of a payoff it really was. And to think about their own well-being and to think about their, their family life and what works best there. By the way, those are the three top reasons people give for wanting to work remotely going forward. And the commute, of course, was at the top. Um, so that reflection, I think, is important for leaders to consider. Um, and there's sort of an endowment effect that, that occurred where people had a chance to experience that freedom and we try to strip it away from them. It's not going to be easy. Um, just taking a coffee cup from somebody that they purchased, you know, the research shows it costs more to get it back. Um, this is no coffee cup. This is uh, a way of life. And uh, it's been experienced differently. So I think leaders need, um, I'm seeing leaders uh, take two approaches when you kind of look at the media and um, and see the, the case studies that the people are showing and the quotes where it's either everybody get back to the office or we trust you to do your own thing and to make it work. Um, I would argue from our data, neither of those two options are the best option. And there's a more nuanced, but you need, we need to be clear about in, in terms of the nuances, we can't just make it vague. And I think clarity and predictability is a key moving forward. One of the things that struck me is, uh, in, in the way you laid this out, as you talk about, you know, is commuting, do, should we still have a commute? Uh, you just mentioned, is FaceTime important? And, and um, a lot of the answers are yes, and yes, and yes, and yes. And, it, and this blend is what's important. I wonder, are managers who have been raised uh, in a system that has not changed the office system for 100 years, are, is there enough flexibility to actually take what you're talking about in your recommendations and put it in, into play? I, I think there's the risk of that for sure. And I think it's going to vary by leader. There's some leaders that have, you know, worked the way we've all traditionally worked historically. I, I guess I can't say I'm one of those because we've had flex time since 1969 at Gallup. So this wasn't much of a shift for us, but, but um, there, there's still challenges in terms of, um, you know, the, like I said, predictability and, and, and making sure that when people do come into the office, they um, can expect their coworkers to be there. There's nothing worse than making the effort, um, taking the dreaded commute um, and showing up and then um, you're the only one there. Why did I do this sort of thing? Um, but, but I think there is the risk of that inflexibility from leadership, particularly, you know, traditional leaders who, who as, associate productivity with faces in the office. Um, I was asked several times during, uh, COVID when every, you know, almost every remote worker was, was spending time working remotely, um, or every remote ready job was, was working remotely that, um, the question was, how do we know people are productive in this setting? And, uh, my question back was, how did you know before they're working remotely if they're productive and just seeing people, um, that that's a bias, right? Um, we think they're more productive when we see them, um, but we need good performance management either way, whether they're in person or remote. We need, uh, organizations need good performance management and it can't be that annual review that never worked in the first place. It's gotta be something much better than that. And we think we've got the answer to what that should be based on the research we had a chance to do. Well, one and of it's the fair to say it's not one size fits all, right? That's, I mean, no, that seems to no. be the biggest takeaway that I get. No, in fact, Jay, um, we have a number of companies that we've had a chance to work with that have uh, um, reached and maintained very high levels of engagement, like triple the global average um, and maintained through the pandemic. 
and it hasn't been a one size fits all. They've, they've made sure it fits their culture, but they have had leadership who explained why they're doing what they're doing. And they've got, they got the input of their employees. They listen to their employees and their teams, which isn't done that often, by the way, and, um, and made it work for their culture. And if you explain the whys, you can kind of start to, um, start to, uh, ex develop some rationality and some reasons why some people do need to be in the office more than others because of the type of work that they do. Um, but perhaps the people that are most damaged going forward, if we think about it out into the future, um, if, if we stick with the status quo are the younger workers who are in many cases saying to themselves, I know what's right for me now. I want a remote job. It works well for me. I don't want the commute. I don't, um, I, you know, I can get my work done. Um, but they need, uh, managers and leaders who help them see the, the power of development how in-person time can play a big role in development, how it can play a big role in terms of uh, feeling connected to a culture. We're seeing employees and employers start to separate now more than we've ever seen before. Engagement was on an incline for a decade, which is really encouraging. And now we've seen it start to decline. And the most troubling part of the decline is a lack of clarity of expectations and lack of feeling connected to the mission or purpose of the organization. So that that employee-employer disconnect, that separation, has has um, has increased, and uh, young people development has decreased. And young people have traditionally always had an advantage in terms of development, not the case anymore. Um, so that needs to be fixed. Um, th there's a lot that goes into that, and uh, we can reach the highest levels of productivity we ever have inside organizations if we get this right, um, because if you couple autonomy with some discipline and accountability and some good performance management, you're meeting human needs, you know, where they currently sit, which is, you know, we all, we all crave some autonomy and we all feel really good. Or most of us, almost everybody feels really good about getting things done with other people. Um, it's a, it's a human desire. It's a human, uh, basic human instinct. We love getting things done with other people and, uh, performance management's gotta, gotta be designed in a way that, that they can do that no matter where they're at. What are some things that uh, leaders, managers uh, should be doing as even first steps? Um, are there things that they should be learning and knowing about their employees um, to better understand um, how to go about transitioning? I would say the most fundamental um, is something we've been working on for quite some time, but it's e even more relevant now than ever before. And management is more relevant now than it's ever been before in terms of its importance. Uh, but it's it's knowing somebody's strengths. And what I mean by that are uh, your your innate uh, tendencies, your innate capacity for success. And we all vary. Um, any of us who've had multiple kids know that they 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 have different tendencies. Um, they can be almost like opposites in many cases. Um, we, we know as growing up that we have different ways of thinking and feeling than other people around us. So we put some science to that. We've got a, a tool called Clifton Strengths. It's now just past 30 million people have completed it, but, um, we want to get that number up a lot higher. And the reason is it, it, it shortens the distance between people. If I know your strengths, uh, I can get to know you much quicker. I don't have to keep experimenting in terms of working with you to figure out how you operate and, and how you, how you think and feel. So I don't, one, I don't disrespect you and two, that, um, that we put each of ourselves in the right position to, to make the team work effectively. 
you know, one person might be really good at, at connecting with other people and building new relationships. Another person might be much better at, at intensifying already existing relationships. Uh, one person might be highly disciplined in terms of the details that they, they follow on a rigorous basis. And another might have high focus where they just get absorbed in something and, and really need that absorption time in their daily work. And so that can help explain why um, somebody like me might need a couple of days of work. I, before the pandemic, I, I had one day a week that I planned to just get absorbed in either research or writing. And uh, that was an important part of doing what I do best. And I've ex extended that now to to a couple of days. So that's a learning, you know, that, that that could happen and still get all the other things done that we need to get done with the team. So those tendencies are really important foundationally because they, the reason that Don Clifton invented that tool, the Clifton Strengths, was to increase productive, the productivity of conversations, to increase the the value that people can have in conversations with one another. And um, it, it can be applied and has been applied by some large organizations in terms of uh, their, their, their performance management to make that more efficient. And it can be applied in terms of how people develop effectively um, in the organization. And, and I mentioned earlier that the team component is important. It can also be used to help people think about how they approach different elements of well-being in their own unique way and uh, how they approach the same job as somebody else in a very unique way. And when we're at a distance or have less frequent interactions with somebody in person, if we know something about them, we can shorten that distance a bit. And um, so that's one thing I'd point to, Barbara, in terms of um, tools that, that can be um, effective in the current situation that we're in, which, you know, our data would suggest it's it's really leveling off. You know, what people are doing now is very stable. It's not like it's changing massively like it did in 2020, 2021. It's um, preferences are not completely aligned with reality, but that reality is kind of very stable in the general population the, the past several quarters. And we look at it every quarter. And the, and certainly those are tools that apply both to office workers who have the opportunity to work remotely and also on-site workers. Um, just before we go, um, what other kinds of choices can employers think about for on-site workers? Because, you know, part of the discussion that we always have is this, you know, remote, hybrid, you know, how can I do my job in one place or another? And there's, a, you know, there's a good proportion, a very large proportion of the workforce that is, that is on-site, but also has preferences. Like half or maybe a little more than half are still on-site. Uh, people that, that don't have the same level of flexibility, um, but they still have, have a need for autonomy. They're still human beings. They want, and when they see other people with autonomy, they want more of it. I mean, the, the people who have dropped in engagement the most are on-site workers in uh, remote-ready jobs. Um, so there's something going on there. And so organizations that we've talked to, and we have a, a group of CHROs that we consult with regularly, uh, Fortune 500s um, across the world, and they listed off some of the things that they're thinking about from a flexibility standpoint for on-site. And so, some of it has to do with flexible shifts. And um, the most common one is dress code, which everybody's doing, but nobody's going to change a job for it. So it's, you know, that's that's kind of one to easy easy to, to check off. But um, there's other things like that you've seen a lot of press on, like the four-day work week, which, you know, you've got to have good coordination to make that work. You've got to align it with your customers. And uh, I'm not saying that it's, that it's a bad idea. It can be a good idea. It seems to have some relationship with well-being um, based on what we've looked at, but it's, it doesn't, it doesn't guarantee high engagement. That still comes from everyday management. 
So no matter what your policies or programs or perks are, you've, you've got to have good managers that have at least one meaningful conversation with each person they manage every week in, in any setting uh, to, to make it work. But they're, they're also experimenting with, um, I mentioned flex time and changes in vacation policies and those kinds of things. And, and that is something somebody would change a job for in, in addition to the four-day work week. So, so those are all things to consider as long as they're well-coordinated and well-considered well and, and that we don't expect the policy to, um, like you mentioned earlier, we can get too narrow in thinking about only policies um, and, and not think about the bigger picture. And the policy isn't going to replace high levels of engagement or low levels of engagement. And, and that's something that still needs to be worked on. Thanks so much, Jim. Really appreciate you joining us today. The book is Culture Shock. Uh, it's a great read for both managers and employees alike. Uh, and the most important part, it's based on data and research. And I think you'll find it a really good read. It'll be out May 30th. Thanks for having me, Barbara and Jay, and wish you the best. So let's turn to a poll that uh, was released on Sunday from the Washington Post ABC News, uh, which is, you know, one of these polls that's been around a long time and is held in high esteem. Um, they still do RDD polling. We talk a lot about that. Uh, random digit dialing polling, telephone polling. We still do as well. There are not a lot of us left. Um, but this poll showed a few things. That The headline was that in a hypothetical 2024 20, rematch between Donald Trump and Joe Biden, Trump's going to win by seven points. And... So a lot of the political chattering classes were like, wow, this is a doomsday kind of poll for Joe Biden. A lot of people at polling said, eh, one poll does not necessarily tell the whole story. This may be an outlier. Other people were looking at the methodology and some of the other things. There's been a lot of talk about that. Um, so let's start there. And Barb, let's start with you because you, you know, get this stuff deep, right? You get the, the, the methodology and these arguments. What's your take on this? Well, I think the first thing is that um, I, I think we have to take all of this polling going forward with a bit of a grain of salt. Um, yes, things are going to fluctuate. Uh, I think that there are um, things that we can pick out um, that are probably methodologically different than other polls that uh, have been done in the in the recent past. But I, I think the the kind of the the herd mentality of just going after, you know, um, the conclusions and results that don't seem to fit the conventional wisdom is not a good thing for our politics and it's not a good thing for polling. Um, that said, I think one of the, the things that that is a little bit different in this poll than we have seen in other polls um, nationally is the closeness of the party identification of the people who responded to the poll. Um, when people when people look at uh, party ID and that's whether people consider themselves to be Democrats or Republicans, we often get criticized if it's not even. In other words, we don't have the same number of Republicans and the same number of Democrats in our poll. And the reason why we don't is because generally there are more Democrats then there are Republicans. And during other periods, there are more Republicans than Democrats. But it's rarely evening, except in this poll, where there's only one point difference between Democrats. It's plus one Democrat and, and uh, uh, over Republicans. So that can certainly attest to why we see uh, greater support um, for both Donald Trump and I believe Ron DeSantis. I think both of them uh, were approximately ahead by, uh, you know, high single digits uh, over the over the president. But it does speak to the fact that the president's 
you know, approval rating, I think, has uh, kind of de has declined, has certainly leveled off. Um, we had seen a, a notching down in our poll from the um, from the from when we had measured it post State of the Union. So I, I think that um, Joe Biden is currently getting into campaign mode and there's good reason for it. Yeah, I, I, I would say. Uh, just to jump in on this, uh, you know, be careful with any single poll as uh, redirecting attention. Although, and I know, uh, Jay, this is a topic near and dear to your heart. Uh, media coverage of polls uh, is sometimes uh, quite lacking. And because this was either a new huge trend uh, developing or an outlier, I suspect more the latter, uh, but it's by a credible polling group. Um, therefore, it attracted an awful lot of attention. Unfortunately, um, if the election were held today, it would be 18 months from now at a time where things change almost daily. So I think that that's, that's an issue to, to keep up in mind uh, that these are anything but a prediction. Uh, I think there were a few things looking into the data that just didn't make sense. For example, Donald Trump does better than Joe Biden among people uh, 18 to 30 years of age. Doesn't make any sense. Joe Biden does better among people who are over 65 than Donald Trump does. Doesn't make sense. Donald Trump, 27% of blacks say they're definitely going to probably going to vote for Donald Trump. He only got 12% last time. And for Hispanic voters, the current number is 43, and he got 32% last time. So in each of those instances, it just doesn't ring true uh, in the data uh, and maybe some of the, you know, the errors are canceling out or what have you. But I just think the whole thing, um, you know, may have tapped into some weakness on Joe Biden. I suspect uh, this race uh, will be polled a lot more. And obviously, we're going to be interested in individual states, which are going to determine ultimately who takes the White House. If, in fact, these are the two nominees, which is a long way uh, down the road. So there's just a lot of things here to say, you know. Go slow, easy does it, and uh, let's hang around for some more numbers, which may uh, may tell a different story. Yeah, one of the things that struck me when you're talking about like the age differences in the in the poll uh, and the numbers there, but also uh, it'd be either 54 or 56 percent, depending on the question asked, believe that Trump should face criminal charges for a variety of different things. And there's they ask it a bunch of different questions. It's either 54 or 56 percent, yet. He beats Biden in a hypothetical horse race by seven. That just seems to, to, to strain, you know, credibility as well. But like you said, 18 months out, is there really any reason to pay attention to any horse race polls? That's the question I'd ask is like, you know, you can go crazy over this if you want, but why are you paying attention to any horse race poll this far out? Well, I think that would be my take. That's it's not lopsided. No one, none of these people are so at 50% or anywhere near it. Uh, Trump closer than others, perhaps. But, uh, you know, it all speaks to what we've seen in every presidential election. Oh, gosh, going back uh, to probably 2000. Um, is that uh, with the exception of, I think, 2008, where it's a bumpy ride. It's going to be close up in the end. And uh, we'll have lots, lots more numbers to talk about uh certainly in the time from now until uh, these numbers are shown to be true or not. Well, I, I, think, I think the White House should take note. 
because um, it, this is not going to be, you know, an, an, an easy road ahead. I think there are a lot of questions. I think there is a lot of angst um, on a variety of different issues. And I don't think um, I don't think either party um, has really um, solidified um, a strong a, a strong um, consensus. Uh, for for the next election. So in that sense, um, I think the the um, this particular poll uh, does inform. Um, it may tell us, you know, what we what we already thought, but it certainly does inform that there is going to be a tight race uh, in 2024. All right. It's fun fact time uh, as we uh, reach that moment in each of our podcasts. And this one is indeed where we can weigh in on uh, without too much difficulty. If you had to choose which holiday is more important to you, would it be Mother's Day or Father's Day? And I was asked by CBS News in 2012, which our good friends at the Roper Center uh, have uh, provided via their archives. The national audience went, and I don't think it's a surprise, 72% went with Mother's Day, 13% went with Father's Day, 10% went with equivalency, both equal, and 4% said, I don't know. Um, so uh, we do have someone here who I think can be a representative of, of uh, at least has a vested interest in this question, and that's our friend Mary. Mary, what, what do you make of this? Mother's well, Day, Father's Day. I don't, I don't know if I have a necessarily a vested interest. I mean, I always say all I want for Mother's Day is to be able to sleep. Um, that's all I want for Mother's Day. <laughs> But um, I would say Mother's Day because of my mom, not because yeah. of me, because of everything that she does for our family. Um, but that said, it would, you know, it, it's hard to say because I always want to make sure that Father's Day is special for my husband. So, um, but, you know, I will go with nearly, th you know, nearly three quarters of Americans and I will say Mother's Day solely because of my mom and not because of me. Okay. Well, for, well, for decades, my mother just asked for peace and quiet. She didn't actually want to sleep, just just to have peace and quiet. And uh, I don't know if we ever succeeded at that. Probably not. If it's anything like my household, I'm going to say you did not. <laughs> I, I mean, growing up, I think Mother's Day was always a bigger day yeah. for us. And I mean, we always gave my dad, you know, socks or a tie or something. <laughs> but Mother's Day was definitely, there was the flowers, there was the, the Sunday you know, a dinner that he cooked for and stuff like that. So, yeah, I mean, I, I, I'm definitely in the majority on this one. Lee? Yeah, I, I, I would say, you know, I remember Mother's Day because I used to buy geranium plants for my mom. But then again, I didn't go too far because the forest was right across the street. So, I mean, it wasn't exactly a big effort on my part, but at least I, I remember the day. And I don't can't say as I remember, uh, maybe that's why I did like, no, I can't say I remember when I got my father for Father's Day. Um, I, I, I don't remember it being, you know, like a major event at our, at our house uh, at, at, at all. So, uh, yeah. And happy, happy Mother's Day. I am your mother. You listen to me. That'll do it for Poll Hub this week. Poll Hub is produced by the Marist Poll at Marist College in Poughkeepsie, New York. Mary Griffith is our executive producer. Casey Schaff is our production supervisor. The Poll Hub team includes Ethan Hollis and Eve Fisher. If you enjoy Poll Hub, please consider leaving a review. Positive reviews help other listeners like you find us. If you have questions for us, tweet them at us at Maris Poll. Remember, you can always tell your smart speaker to play Poll Hub and with any luck, 
it'll cooperate. Finally, wherever you listen to Pole Hub, there is a subscribe button. Click it and the latest episode will be ready for you in your podcast app as soon as it's released. We'll, we'll see, see you next time. time. I am your mother. I am your mother. You listen to me. You